Hi there, and welcome back to Chinwag with me, Mike Laverick. Uh, I'm just about to go on holiday and just about to get married. <laughs> Not nervous at all. Um, but before I do that, I have got a little bit of time to do a chinwag and fit in before I go off and do my various bits and pieces. With me today is uh, a man called Mike Brown, which some of you may or may not have heard of. Um, I first came across, I think I've, I've had Mike on my Twitter feed for a while, but it's like that thing, uh, you Google something and you land on somebody's webpage, you go, that name's familiar, how do I know that person? <laughs> so I was looking for uh, what I call a skinny Linux virtual machine, which is like one of these Linux VMs that like only take 32 meg of RAM and about the same in disk space, because I was doing a lot of this nesting where ESX is running on ESX and you're running VMs on top of ESX. You know, let's face it, once you've got all the turtles on top of each other like that, there isn't usually an awful lot of memory left. And the other good use of these skinny Linux things is when I was using uh, vCloud Connector, uploading VMs to the cloud and downloading them and stretching them. You know, even with a good internet pipe, nobody wants to sit and watch status bars. So as long as you can upload it within a couple of minutes and check that it's up and that you can ping it, you know, it doesn't need to be Windows. It could be something that's a lot more kind of um, slim and thin. But anyway, I'm rambling on. I should, you know, shut my mouth. Um, Mike, are you there or have you fallen asleep? Um, no, I'm here with you, Mike. Thanks. <laughs> Please introduce yourself to people listening in and watching. Absolutely. So my name is Mike Brown. I am a consulting engineer out of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I've uh, been at NIT about uh, five years now, came up as a Windows Systems Administrator, as many of us did, and discovered uh, VMware and virtualization together at the same time, about uh, 2010. Mm -hmm. So I'm relatively new uh, compared to some, uh, some of the more uh, veteran folks out there, but uh, certainly fell in love with virtualization and have been having a blast uh, in it since, since then. So. And the, and the blog is, what's the blog for the URL? Yeah, absolutely. So I blog at virtuallymikebrown.com. Uh, it's sort of like a, uh, it started out just as a, just a little project, just kind of a neat thing, right? Um, but it's, it's, I say it's taken off, but I've had a lot of fun with it. Uh, I've, I've had interactions with folks around the world. Uh, and that's really kind of, as many of, uh, of us bloggers have found out, that's really what keeps us going, right? Uh, we do it for ourselves, you know, to, to sort of offload uh, what we have in our brains uh, onto a more permanent space, but when you actually see see that it helps people out and that that they respond to you, or if it helps someone someone else out, uh, that uh, kind of encourages uh, encourages us to keep going yeah. and more. So, also on the twitters at, at virtually might be uh, Twitter's been an awesome uh, experience too, being able to reach out to folks around the world just to say hey or. Uh, share common experiences so it's a great level of twitter because you know more or less anyone can follow anybody else and anyone can tweet anybody else whereas any other comms you have to friend them first you <laughs> have to know their email so i can like find i can find anybody and just go oh i'll tweet them something you know so absolutely and it's a, very, a great lever in the sense that you know once you've got ceos and ctos on twitter you can you can tweet them as well and go hey your surface it sucks <laughs> no, that, that's so right. You know, I, I try to keep my Twitter more on the, on the professional side, even yeah, though I say professional, but, you know, it's not like sharing my baby pictures or something like that, like you would on Facebook. But, yeah, absolutely. Being able to reach out to similar like-minded professionals and talk about our 
sort of our, our life passion, right? Mm. It's not necessarily for many of us just an eight to five job. We do this in our spare time because we enjoy it. And being able to share those experiences uh, on Twitter has been fun. So with you being based in Dallas, uh, do you have any contact with the local VMware people in, in Dallas at all? So I, I don't actually. Uh, this is sort of my first venture into consulting and into the partner side of things, and that's been uh, a ride in itself. Lots of lessons to learn out there uh, coming from the customer side, right? Uh, and also, uh, I was an Army contractor for, for ages, it seems. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I was far away from the whole partner community and the sort of the internal VMware crowd. Um, but yeah, now working as a partner, I haven't necessarily uh, got in with the, the VMware folks down here in, in uh, Dallas, uh, but I have, uh, fortunately, got into the VMUG down here. That's been a good experience as well. A great way to network. And also, you know, I mean, meeting these folks face-to-face, you, again, find that uh, we all share a common passion. And Well, before uh, we, we get into the VMUG, what I was going to tell you offline, but I'll tell you online, is uh, I'm going to be in Dallas at the end of May. Yep. My boss is based in Dallas, and I'm coming in mainly to speak at the Denver and Pittsburgh VMUG. But he said, if you're going to be in the U.S., why not come down to uh, Dallas and spend a couple of days with the team and then go out to Denver and then go out to Pittsburgh? So uh, let me I'll introduce you to some people at VMware uh, and we'll get we'll get you chatting to our side of the house, not just the VMUG people. But anyway, let's, let's step into the, the, uh, the chat. And we mentioned VMUG and I I did this thing I always do when when I know somebody's got a blog and I'm looking to get them on the chin because I have a look at what they've been blogging about. And I go, that's interesting. Uh, that goes over my head. Uh, <laughs> that's not interesting. That's interesting. So one of the things I picked up on is on your blog, you were talking about speaking at the Dallas VMUG about the differences between Cisco OTV and VMware BXLAN and, and stuff like that. And it's kind of related to another project, which I, I know we're going to talk about. Um, one thing I will say, and I'll, I'll get this sort of in preemptively, as far as I'm aware, the official support statement on VXLAN is it's uh, a site-only technology, you use it within a site. We're not yet supporting it across yes. sites. Yes. Occasionally, I think people look at VXLAN and go, Ooh, we, can, we can use this like we can use all these other technologies. And there's a little bit of, yeah, yeah, war horsey war. Uh, have you read what the support statement is? Which I imagine maybe might have been one of the things that you were trying to get across, but... There's, I don't want to steal your thunder here, but it's a, a much bigger <laughs> picture. So, have I already stolen your thunder? No, that, that's indeed like the biggest thing, and that uh, kind of goes into our, our use case discussion as well. Um, that whole discussion at the VMO one, uh, boy, I, I was real busy on a, on a on a work project, and I didn't even get my slide decks done. So I tried doing it doing it from uh, just from the podium. And that was a, a mistake. So that was my first VMUG session. Um, and uh, I did my best, but I'll tell you what, it was a couple things. The you know, Like you, like you mentioned earlier, OTV and VXLAN, a lot of folks may not even know what those stand for, let yeah. alone technologies do. And uh, uh, lesson learned is that uh, so we needed a sort of baseline before I got into, this, into the discussion. Um, but then after, you know, even after everybody's on the same page, then we need to talk about, uh, what the technologies uh, have addressed, right? What what problems they address, and then where you can use them to solve your problems in in uh, in your business. Mm. So that's what the the, the VMUG session was over, uh, and and in particular, uh, I was working at a bank, and and they were standing up their first DR site, and 
So I said, that's awesome. Let me go talk to the lead network guy. I was their, their VMware guy, of course. And I said, so, you know, what are your thoughts on this, this DR site? I'd been reading up on OTV and whatnot. And uh, he's like, yeah, yeah. So we're going to, I think we're going to use OTV. I was like, really? So why is that? And he said, well, I'm not really sure, but uh, it looks, looks pretty cool. That's why I said, okay, that's interesting. That's an interesting uh, bit of design criteria, you know. Get that well, for your VCDX. It was pretty cool. <laughs> well, and, and this is, uh, I wouldn't think so, but this is how some people think. And you, I, I've been finding it's more prevalent than, than I would have imagined, right? Not everybody, but again, it, it's it's so critical to get the use case right. So we ended up hiring a uh, an outside large hosting and consulting firm to come in and consult on on this dr project and the the first thing now i guess the 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 important thing to get out first was understanding what our business was trying to do and that was to have a hot and a cold i say cold site but a complete failover site right so you hit the big red button somebody declares a, a disaster you hit the big red button and everything fails over all at once mm -hmm. right or everything that they want to uh, they never wanted to have some VMs running over here and some VMs running over there, or they never wanted to uh, move VMs. Uh, they, didn't, they never wanted to vMotion VMs between sites. So understanding that use case is that it's all or nothing was probably the most important thing to understand when, if we're going to discuss uh, Layer 2 data center interconnect, right? Mm -hmm. So real quick for those folks who, who, who don't know, OTV – uh, is essentially uh, laying a or creating a layer two uh, network uh, over a layer three network, right? In this so case, so some people call it a stretch VLAN as, as a kind of another way of calling it. What it is, right? But it adds a lot more protections than other layer two uh, technologies that we we've been using in the past, right? So I'm not a, a strict network guy, but I think it's very important to understand, especially in virtualization, more and more, especially with vCloud. Uh, it, it gets pretty important to understand networking at a, at a pretty solid level. Well, I guess there's another way of looking at it is what is it about OTV that, that people are attracted to when it comes to DR? Why do they want it? What, what, what yeah, do they want so, it for? So what I understand is that folks like the idea of being able to uh, vMotion VMs uh, sort of at their will with a, 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 a large enough pipe in between sites they like the idea of being able to live migrate VMs between sites, right? That may or may not be a functional requirement in, in a design. Uh, other times, it's because uh, IP spaces uh, are not, uh, you, perhaps you don't have enough of them, or perhaps you don't have the ability to change IP addresses during a failover, right? So That's you would the want one, to the big one I always hear customers say, it's because they don't want to re-IP. Um, yeah. The interesting thing that you might not know uh, is I learned after joining VMware about SRM that more than 60% of uh, people using SRM re-IP. So what was yeah. interesting about that little beginning of the story was most network guys, when you say to them, how about stretching out the network so we don't have to re-IP, you have to then peel them off the ceiling because they just hit the roof. Like, we're not doing that. And it's like, oh, okay. So, I mean, I used to have all this discussion with with customers about DR. Should we re-IP? Should we stretch VLAN? Should we do netting as our way of not having to change the IP? And I used to say to them, look, there's all these wonderful technologies out there that can fix the problem. But if you that's if you can get approval for them and if you can get the, yeah. the network guys on signed, you know. So, but anyway, carry on. 
Well, no, absolutely. And these are all things to take into, into consideration. Uh, your applications, are they re-IPable, right? That's another thing. Uh, you need to talk to the application guys, the application owners, to see if that's even possible, right? If you can just re-IP and it won't break anything. Now, with application stacks, that may get somewhat tricky. But, if, for instance, if, it, if a homegrown application has hard-coded IPs or something like this, uh, that could be more difficult. Um, but, again... So somehow... Having an IP address in a text file is just a really great place to put it, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> if there are only some some uh, uh, resolution protocol out there for us to use, I, I don't know. I um, what was oh. interesting about asking application owners about the you know would a reIP chip damage your application is how many application owners turn around and go I don't know. <laughs> Well, another clue, you know. So this is this is very true, and, and these are again all things that need to be taken into consideration. Versus just saying, well, I don't really know what we can do, so let's just you know choose option A. I mean, that's a, a poor way to operate. But then again, many times you're operating, uh, especially as consultants with the customers that perhaps uh, you almost have to walk them through these, right? Uh, hopefully they're they're able to work with you and and uh, do what they can to help themselves, right? Uh, so right there was uh, OTV. Um, where were we? The uh, you were having so this they, discussion uh, with the network guy and he seemed to think it was pretty cool. And well, that that's a good reason yeah, to do absolutely. anything. Absolutely. And so uh, as a VMware, here's <laughs> this was kind of exciting, but I was I was you know happy to do it. Um, understanding that our uh, use case was all or nothing failover. Uh, and that that meant that we could reuse IP subnets at the other site, mm. um, as in we wouldn't have the same subnet active at the same time at both sites, which would obviously screw up your routing if you mm. if you had if you're routing between them. Um, understanding that, I said, "Hey guys, uh, we don't need OTV. If this is the case, we don't need it. We can simply route." And so I'm also a big fan of of Ivan Pepelniak at uh, iOS Hints. Uh, logged out iOS Inside Info. I think he's gone to ipspace.net. Uh, he's, he makes a great, a lot of great arguments uh, for, or I say for or against, but essentially against layer two data center and interconnects. But at least there are things to think about. Mm. Um, so, out of curiosity, then, uh, the yeah. VMs wouldn't be re IP'd, they'd just yeah. be brought up as is in yeah. the new sign, and they would point to a, a default gateway which. For all intents and purposes, they would not even realize they'd be moved. Is that so, the idea? Yeah, absolutely. So OTV adds a lot of protections, as I mentioned, that traditional Layer 2 solutions uh, across sites didn't have. And one of them is really cool, right? It's called FHRP isolation, the first hop redundancy protocol isolation. Uh, the idea is that you can have the same default gateway at both sites uh, uh, up at the same time, right? And the idea is uh, you don't... Uh, the, the packets that uh, each device would communicate uh, with on, on each site or across the sites, they would never know that that IP address exists. Mm. So that as you move a VM or restart a VM on the other side, you don't need to script that uh, or SRM doesn't have to uh, re-IP or, or give that VM a, a, a different default gateway, mm. right? So you don't have to touch the VM or at least the, the networking portion and it can uh, exit out the uh, data center that it's it's at now, like data center B. Right? So I, I guess these two sites were near enough to each other because it's not just the networking, it's the storage, isn't it? And you need quite fancy synchronous kind of access to that storage. So as a write happens here, 
it's oh, also happening somewhere else and you're getting the axe back so so that yeah it's so not just the networking side of it to, to do the sort of work that you need to think about is it no absolutely this is the exciting part right so so many customers have so many different needs and, and requirements and uh their their environments differ right so if you've got you know two data centers that are kilometers apart uh you know maybe tens of kilometers apart it's possible that if you have enough money you get redundant 10 gig links between sites perhaps uh perhaps uh distributed storage or something like this is very possible in that case uh in the bank's case uh a few kilometers apart wasn't good enough you've got to be states away right for federal regulations um so some sort of distributed storage was not it, as you know, it's going to be asynchronous replication from the array. Um, but uh, this is, the again, the exciting part, I guess, uh, of consulting. You have to consider all of the, uh, the sort of the inputs. So but, out of curiosity, this, uh, we were talking like through email and whatnot that there, you're looking at an SRM project coming up. Yes. Is it with this particular client, with the bank, or is it with a different customer? No, not at So this, uh, this particular client... It's it's exciting certainly, um, but it's also challenging. Mm. Um, no, this this client has their their data centers uh, uh, within DFW, right? Both data centers. Um, they also have a, a, a third uh, DR site per se. Um, I'm going to have to uh, translate that. DFW is what? Dallas Fort Worth for people. Who Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> Once you get over to California, you'll you'll learn these uh, pretty quick. All right, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so their their uh, their sites are are uh, close enough together that you know if you needed to do some sort of, of synchronous storage or distributed storage, you could. Uh, but then again, uh, architecting a solution over any sort of large or, or long distance uh, WAN link or uh, in this case, like a metro Ethernet link. Yeah, I think a metro network type setup yeah. across, two, across the city, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. So, but it, the idea is, uh, you need to understand the risks associated. I mean, the question always comes down to, what if the the WAN or that that inter DC link goes down, right? So what happens? So you, it's not necessarily it's not a well connected network uh, like you would consider uh, a single internal data center, right? Mm. So, but these are again design uh, design decisions that, that need to be made. And, and I guess with that client who's all in the Dallas Fort Worth area, if if the disaster was big enough that you know it affected the entire city, to them it doesn't matter anymore because they've they've lost everything. So having having some location you know elsewhere in Texas or yeah. even out of the state wouldn't yeah. really help them because they would be, you know, in the mire anyway. It was that their situation. So their their requirements are such that uh, it's okay. And essentially, all we're going to be doing is is replicating uh, the data to a storage system. Uh, and there's nothing else out out of state, by the way. Um, there's nothing else at this third sort of DR site. We're just backing up the data. In, in this case, snapballing uh, with NetApp's uh, Snapball. Um, we're just replicating, and then should you know both data centers go down, be a smoking crater, uh, they'll at least at least have the data. They'll order their new servers and stand up the uh, that third data center in such a way to sort of uh, recover that that data or use that data. Sure. Now, one of the things you mentioned in your email was uh, NetApp, but also using yeah. NetApp in your own test lab or home lab. Um, I'm not sure whether you're using it 
in a test lab at work or a home lab. And you're also using uh, Valletta, which I have come across because a, a, a buddy of mine who was a former student, he actually has a kind of SMB solution based on VMware, but they use Valletta as the, the firewall piece. Was, yeah. the, was the interest in the NetApp uh, simulator there because you knew you were going to be using it at work and you wanted to kind of play around with it in a kind of sandpit environment where you couldn't cause any harm to you or your customers? <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, so I know, you know, hopefully we don't, none of us use uh, production systems as our test lab, right? Uh, but no, actually, here I have a really nice test lab, uh, a UCS uh, semi flex pod set up with Nexus switching and a, a small 2240. Uh, That's pretty uh, nice for test. <laughs> it is, it is. But so these are one of the perks of being being partners, right? Uh, and, and having sort of this sort, this kind of support. Um, so that's that's the work test lab. But as far as the simulators and, and virtual routers, um, boy, this is this is how we learn. This right, this is our craft. We don't. Uh, uh, some people may be able to, but I can't learn by osmosis, right? So um, what I ended up doing, I was in Afghanistan when I actually I was working over there for the army. When I uh, learned of the NetApp simulator, we were doing the uh, complete data center implementation for the army, uh, and they use NetApp. So. Here we are. I'm trying to learn NetApp just about as quick as I can. I have a great mentor over there to sort of uh, help me along, but at the same time, I, need, I needed to do my part. So uh, it was actually over there that I saw, um, is it is it uh, wooditwork.com and Julian Wood, oh, wow. his uh, post, that's right, his post on um, how to get more uh, disk space, how to get more space out of the simulator. Um, uh, I think by default it comes with like 20 gigs of, of disk space. Anyways, that was a great post and really helped me get started with the simulator. Um, but since then, the simulator has really been a mainstay in my lab. Um, uh, so it, over there, right, you can't necessarily uh, haul around with you. I'm looking at my, 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 my rack right here. Um, you can't haul around a, a test lab rack with you with, with, with servers in it and switches. So what I did is I bought a beefy laptop and filled it with a couple SSDs and 16 gigs of RAM, and man, you're off to the races, right? You can run you run Workstation, and then you run your NetApp simulator, uh, virtual routers in it, and I mean, essentially, you're with your nested ESXi hosts, uh, you've got a mobile lab, and that was crazy useful in, in learning, um, well, what I needed to know. Now, you probably know more about what the capabilities of the NetApp sim simulator, I won't say probably, you will know more about its capabilities than I do. Does the NetApp simulator support the kind of fancy cluster modes and stuff that you get with, you know, ONTAP 8 and beyond? Or is so, it so a couple things. Now, I, I don't recall if it actually supports cluster mode versus 7 mode. All I've used is 7 mode. I, okay. I hear cluster mode's a completely different monster. Um, but uh, the one thing that I really, I've, many people wish it did do was uh, handle an HA configuration. That would be so useful. Um, so what I try to do is is make it as uh, as near real life as possible, right? So I use you can't use uh, dynamic multi-mode VIFs, right? You can't use LACP with it, uh, but you know you throw some more virtual NICs in there, and you can at least use uh, static multi-mode, right? Just sort of like a static Ether channel uh, to simulate what you would see in the real world, some sort of redundant network connection. So that's one thing. Uh, you can still use System Manager. Other than that, it's essentially, oh, obviously no fiber channel, right? Um, but you can use all your IP storage. Um, and just, cr it's crazy useful for 
not only your, your home labs or your test labs, but uh, writing your blog posts or testing out configurations. Um, fortunately, I haven't had to do much of that since I've got this awesome uh, test lab at work, but uh, the NetApp Simulator has been uh, a great learning tool for me, and it's really how I learned most of what I, I know now outside of this project, although this project has been has been uh, <laughs> great for me. I take it the use of SSDs in that laptop was to try and take the disk spindle out that, of the equation. Yeah, absolutely. Between between SSDs, I, I used uh, Intel 320 series SSDs, so I think they're like a generation older mid-series or mid-level uh, uh, SSD, but night and day. So they're my first SSDs, night and day, between obviously standard hard drives, uh, SATA 2 is what I was still using, mm -hmm. but uh, for a test lab, they scream, I mean, and especially on a laptop. Uh, and then more and more folks are finding this as, as the prices come down every now and then. You can find some great deals on Well, it's funny deal. that you mentioned that because I think uh, Ricky Al-Kassim, who I know from, from Twitter, was saying that uh, Crucial have a one terabyte SSD drive available now in the UK for about £500, which is what? Oh, my God. Of, about seven hundred US dollars, I would have thought. Maybe it's probably cheaper in the US than it is in the UK because everything's more expensive in Europe than more than it should be. But I was like, my God, you know, a one terabyte SSD drive in, uh, and like, because early SSD drives were a bit on the slim side. I mean, I must admit, I've got one in my my MacBook Pro, and I wish I'd paid the extra couple of hundred quid for the additional space because I now have to keep an eye on it to make sure it doesn't get out of hand. You know? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So that that space is valuable on there. So only VMs go there. Everything else gets installed to D, right? So, um, but yeah, SSDs and basically cramming as much RAM as you can into your test lab boxes, whether they're laptops or not. Um, so been, did you have a, a dual configuration SSD and uh, some sort of SATA drive inside the same? You like rip out the CD-ROM to put two discs in or uh, in this case it was a it, it was a dual bay uh, laptop so um, and essentially it was just it was just something for me to uh, outside of a MacBook Air which can't do an awful lot on uh, something to carry around <laughs> and, uh, and and learn on you're absolutely right though yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny that you mentioned the Macs because um, I've got one of the older generation of the MacBook Pros the, uh -huh. the ones that are slightly thicker profile and you uh -huh. can like take the screws off the back and get to the memory and take out the disk and take out the CD-ROM. But the newer generation that only came out back end of last year, early this year, are getting as thin as some of the airs. And somebody said to me, you just can't open these things up anymore. The motherboard oh, okay. and whatever is right over the components that you need to get to. You have practically have to completely dissemble the thing to get more memory in or get a disk in. Yeah. And I said to them, that's really bad news for people who are, like, recently switched to Mac because, you know, nobody wants to pay the Apple prices for Apple memory. You know that special kind of memory that's uh, an extra 300 or 400 US dollars, even though it's the same as any other memory you can buy in the market? Nope. We all want to self-upgrade because you can you can save yourself uh, a packet doing it. Uh, all right, so that's great to hear that there's you know even more tools available for people in the home lab who want to do more production-like things, even though they may not have the resources to do so. So um, you mentioned uh, just a few short seconds ago the word mentoring, and I, that came up in my head. Um, we were talking through email about you know how it is that you succeed in IT. How do you get along nowadays? And uh, how important having good mentors is, but you know, you, you tell me what's your what's your view on this, Mike? 
Absolutely. So this is this is really uh, near and dear to me because I've had I've had the the good fortune to work with some really really good folks and really really smart folks folks that have uh, sort of taken me under the under, under their wing and have shown me the ways right uh, shown me the, the ways to succeed in IT. It's been awesome sharing their knowledge with me, uh, being patient with me as I learn. Uh, and that's been something that's how many of us have probably experienced in IT, the sort of the jerks in IT, right, that <laughs> maybe strut their stuff or, or, I mean, they sort of brush you off. Or, I mean, so this, this happens in all seriousness. And nobody, nobody likes those guys. They, they sort of put a downer on certainly the, the up-and-comers, the newcomers, the, the folks who do want to have a passion for IT. But um, then there are the, the folks like a, a few uh, leaders that I've had. Um, that have uh, been been knowledgeable in the first place, right? And then they've taken the time to sort of either give you projects to work on to sort of uh, get you up to speed or, or give you that sort of experience that you're looking for. Um, and then those who will take the time to whiteboard with you or give you uh, give you projects to work on in the in the home lab or in the test lab at work. And it's these folks that go above and beyond what I feel is they're even their their duty, right? Uh, Versus saying, "Hey, you know, here's the next project. Here's the next project. Just do your job." Uh, and then these folks come in and say, "Hey, this is this is how it works, right?" So um, what I've, I'm still, I mean, I'm a former instructor, so mentoring people is part and parcel of what you do. But I, I must admit, I've even come across instructors who are a bit like the jerks in IT. Yeah. And uh, you want to get information out of them, and it's like getting blood out of a stone. And I don't know whether that's because. They don't want to help another instructor get the knowledge they have and then undermine their own position. But I used to think, how crazy, you're actually in a profession where you learn something that might take you a week to crack, and then yeah. you give that away in less than five or ten minutes. Yeah. And people go, oh, thanks for that. You saved me a lot of time. But, you know, if you're not prepared okay. to share with other people, it's not, not a job to be in. If, if you're an instructor and you like to keep your knowledge to yourself, you're in the wrong game, I used to used to say to these people, but it, it does happen. I, I guess we meet people like that in any, every walk of life. There are those people who help other people get on and those people who spend more time looking after themselves and protecting yes, their, their world. And I've always found those people don't get on in the future. They, they kind of, by locking, they lock themselves out of growing with other people, I think, when they behave that way. No, absolutely. And uh, uh, along those lines, these folks are the folks that you want to keep near to you, right? When you do come across them, uh, just uh, do all you can to to sort of accept what they're what they're offering. And then the other part of that, certainly, so that you're taking a lot as the mentoree, but then turn around and when you have the opportunity, also share with others, right? Just sort of give back. Uh, and that's the other part of, of why I love IT so much is that not only have if I had great people to sort of mentor me and my uh, journey so far, but between blogging and, and getting on the Twitters, um, the, the V-Mode, and the, the entire V-Community uh, is what I've found to be uh, sort of sort of my sustainment, right? It's, it's what not only gives to you, but you can also give back and see folks uh, use your experiences, use your knowledge to, to benefit themselves. And that, uh, been... that, that can work professionally as well, because I was approached by uh, a company, I won't mention their name, looking for uh, a couple of contractors down in London. And was I interested? And they, they didn't know that I'd, I'd gone permi and I was working for VMware. <laughs> I said, no, but I know an awful lot of the guys down in the, the London VMUG. Um, let me go on the, the LinkedIn group and just see, you know, is anybody looking for some work? And I don't know what came of this. It was a couple of weeks ago. I don't know whether they got a gig or whether they didn't. 
but that's how opportunities come nowadays. You know? Absolutely. It was funny, I was talking to Carmel about my wife-to-be about an opportunity, and uh, she said, oh, well, do you, do you think I should wait until they advertise this this role? Um, because that's how you used to do it. You used to wait, <laughs> you liked a company, then they'd advertise a role, then you'd apply for it. And I said, no, it's all changed. You go to them before they've even thought that they might need someone. Isn't that right? Them, I've looked at your company and I've seen that there's this need and I think I'm the person to do it. That's how jobs get <laughs> get done now. If you wait for it to wash up on your show, you'll be waiting for yeah. you know, a hell to freeze over. You That's make true. the job. You make the role. And she looked at me and went, all right, okay. <laughs> I said, it's a great idea, but don't wait for them to come to you. Go to them because that gives you the the impression of initiative. Like, oh, this person's already thinking about what we should be doing in two years' time. No, yeah, you when we come to it, you know. So, uh, so I've noticed that with VMware, that's I mean, just incredibly cool to me. And I'm reminded of of Nick Weaver's uh, automation architect job, right? I mean, you don't necessarily see these job titles floating out there, but they're like, this Nick Weaver guy's incredible. Uh, where can we use him? Uh, so, give him this job, give him this title, and 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 uh, obviously, so you're an evangelist now with VMware, and there's many other evangelists in their areas uh but that the idea that a company can sort of uh, use these talents in these ways i mean it's very exciting right instead of traditional here's the job roles here's you know how you'll fill them uh, oh i think that's pretty cool we've come a long way from that i guess and i was saying to somebody uh, a recruiter at uh, a vmug recently it's almost i don't think it's expected or required but Alongside your experience and your certifications, if you can say I'm active in a VMUG, I've spoken at a VMUG, if you could say I've got a blog, I, uh, I have, I have end, end, end followers or I've got relationships with Scott Law and Duncan Epping, I can tweet these people, they respond to me. That, that has a value now which I think maybe even in this point of time we're like, is that valuable? Or is it just all very nice? That's great, you know. But anyway, you know, I think no, I was those just, things are more valuable than they were in the past. I was just explaining this to someone who emailed me. I had a stranger emailed me out of the blue. Said, "Mike, how do you, you know, how do you do this? Uh, how do you, how do you succeed in IT?" Right, essentially what he said. And one of the the coolest things that I could tell him was uh, about about virtualization and VMware in particular mm-hmm. was that it's this community that helps so much. Being able to reach out. And tweet Mike Laverick or Duncan Epping say, "Hey, you know what about this doc?" Or, or real quick, you know, what do you what do you think about this? And have folks respond to you. Then all the, you know, not necessarily knocking down their door and bugging them to write you a paper, but you're saying, "Hey, what are you, you're the expert? What are your thoughts on this? What are your? I mean, just take a second." And these folks take the time to respond. It's a community that that I haven't found anywhere else. Uh, it's amazing and has really been one of the keys to it. I mean, one of the things I do, and I don't advertise it because I'm scared it might get out of hand, but when I get into a conversation with somebody about SRM on Twitter, you know, it is only yeah. 140 characters. And some, I'm sorry, yeah. look, here's my Skype ID, let's talk. Because, yeah. I mean, yeah. I work from home and, uh, you know, my wife-to-be, she works at home as well. But sometimes it's just easier to jump on a Skype call and go, what's the beef, and have a chat with somebody. And it's actually enjoyable because, you know, even Incredible. with Twitter and email, and the other thing, email, you know, you ask somebody to give them more detail in email and then you get involved in an email storm. 
And very often, if you can just talk to the person for about 15 or 20 minutes, you can get to the bottom of the situation, have an interesting chat to somebody you might not have met at all. And then it's like, well, cheerio, you know, thanks for helping. So the mentoring is going on in Skype as well, you know, just like this. This but is not so recorded. true. This is so true. So uh, it's something that, you know, if no one has ever told you, to, you know, turned around and said, thank you so much. I mean, here for me now, because I've, I've done it myself to, to folks, uh, I mean, reached out to folks for their help. Yeah. So the thank, not only thank you to you uh, for what you do, but all those other experts out there that, uh, that help out uh, the community. It's awesome. I think the other thing about the community is it's, it's kind of endemic about the way IT works because unlike other professions, let's face it, you know, your doctoring, your lawyering, your whatever, where you may have to do five or six years worth of professional qualifications before they allow you to do anything. I guess that's a good thing when you're like slicing somebody up and messing around with their bits. But the <laughs> IT has always been one of those industries where if you're 18 or 19 and you're straight out of high school or 21 or 22 and straight out of uni, as long as you don't walk around like you know it all, and as long as you walk in like you, you want to learn and you're keen, then people will always have time for you. It's not so, a, an industry that puts a lot of professional kind of barriers in front of people and says you're not welcome or you you have no right to work here until you've done 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, and then people might listen to what you have to say. Uh, it's a very yeah. young industry and it attracts people who, you know, come in uh, with very little knowledge, but in a very short period of time, your peers with them uh, very, very quickly, you know. No, that's that's the that's one of the, the big attractive or big uh, attractions to IT, certainly. Uh, that reminds me of, of really what one of the things that when I do get hit up for those success questions in, in IT, uh, one thing that I've found, I guess, that I'd like to share is that one probably needs about, about three there's three ideas that I think that are, are uh, key to success in IT uh, that I found anyways. It's one, it's, it's having a foundation, right, and getting that foundation really however you can do that. And that's through, obviously, your, your self-learning, your formal educations or a formal education, uh, vendor documentation, test lab, et cetera, et cetera, right? But getting that foundation. Uh, the second uh, that I always say is that you have to have a willingness to learn, right? IT, as we know, it's changing so fast. It's tough to keep up. It's tough to keep up just with virtualization or VMware in particular, let alone networking or operating systems or storage. Um, so that willingness to learn. And then uh, one needs uh, a capacity to learn, right? So, I mean, if you take away any one of those, and it's going to be, I, I feel, tough to succeed in IT, right? You may have a willingness and a capacity to learn, but you need to have that foundation first, essentially, right? I would not suggest to anybody who would to jump into virtualization with essentially no IT knowledge, right? It's, it's impossible or very difficult, if nothing else. Take away that willingness to learn, right? You may, have, you may be a really smart guy or have that high capacity to learn, even have a foundation. But if you sit on your laurels or are lazy and you don't want to keep up, you're going to be obsolete pretty quick. And the same with the capacity. You may be willing, you may have a foundation, but if you, I guess, can't learn new things, uh, then again, I think you're back to obsolescence. Nobody wants to get stuck in their ways. Hey, Mike, it's been great chatting to you. Um, we should hook up when I'm in Dallas in the next couple of weeks. Man, sounds great. Have a couple of beers, you know, have a chinwag that's not on Skype. <laughs> you bet. But thanks very much for being on the show, and uh, I'll see you soon. Mike, thank you very much. You take care.